guys can have a seat. Good morning and uh, welcome again to GBC. If I don't know you, my name is uh, Daniel Ernest. I'm the executive pastor here, uh, and it's uh, a pleasure to get to preach to you from God's Word. I hope everyone had uh, a wonderful Thanksgiving. It's really uh, fun to kind of be setting up for Christmas as well. I I want you guys to notice this tree over here on the edge on this side. It's like the Griswold family Christmas tree. Do y'all see how awesome that thing is? Anyways, I love Christmas, and I think that tree is triumphant. So I wanted to point it out just in case you missed it. That said, we're going to be continuing on today uh, in our series through 1 Corinthians, and we're going to do so by looking at the last half of 1 Corinthians chapter 14. So if you've got your Bibles, go ahead and turn to 1 Corinthians 14. We're going to be looking at verses 26 through 40. And as you get there, this is sort of a review. You probably remember this, you probably know this, but when Paul wrote this letter, 1 Corinthians, uh, there was only one church in Corinth. Okay, there was only one church. It wasn't like there was first church of Corinth and second church of Corinth. This is just one church. And, and the church, which probably would have had about 100 to 150 members, that's a best guess, that the, the church would gather weekly all in one place, okay, probably at a, a large house or, or in a courtyard of a large house. So I want you to imagine like there's like this many people in this section right here, this middle section over here on the right side, there, there's that many people in the church of Corinth and all of these people every single Sunday are gathering for worship in the same place. And, and the worship services in Corinth, that's, that's really what we're going to be talking about today The Sunday gatherings in Corinth, uh, they had become extremely chaotic. Okay, we'll get into the details here in a second, but I I want you to imagine just for a second that the people in this section right here, our our church in Corinth, I want you to imagine that like seven to ten of them are sort of standing up and and yelling or shouting or or talking. They're they're trying to make sure that they're heard. Some of them are speaking in, in weird foreign languages. Some of them are shouting questions at me or shouting questions at each other. I want you to think about what that would look like. I think I want you to think about what that would feel like to to go to church here. Like, we we can hardly stand when a kid starts to cry or scream. Everyone's like, oh, what's going on? Like, I want you to imagine what it would look like for all of these people to be standing, to to be yelling. This is what it was like to go to church in Corinth At the time, Paul is writing this letter. And in our text today, what he's going to do, what he's going to address, is he's going to correct the Corinthians by giving them some direction with regard to what their worship services should actually look like. Essentially, what he's going to say is clean it up. Now, my my hope in looking at this text with you, you guys today is to draw out a couple of principles that I think are going to be really applicable for us, and, and you're just going to have to trust me on this, okay? It's going to get really easy to get lost in the details. There's a lot of explaining that has to be done in this text. Paul is giving some very specific instruction, but, but despite all of the explanation that I'm going to have to do, that Paul's going to do, I don't want you to miss the big picture. There's going to be two principles that I think are going to help us Grace Bible Church in Houston, Texas, to evaluate and order our own worship gathering. So, the stage set. Uh, the first principle that I talked about is going to come in verse 26. So, if you would please look at me at 1 Corinthians 14, verse 26. Paul's writing. He says, 
What then, brothers? When you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Let all things be done for building up. Okay, the, the first principle is something that Paul has already been talking about quite a bit for the last several chapters. It's, it's this principle of edification. Paul says, let all things be done, all things within the worship service, let all things be done for building up. It's, it's the idea that when we gather for worship, our principal concern, my, my principal concern, your principal concern is not for ourselves. Okay, we're not concerned with, with what we want out of the service, what, what songs we want Michael to play, what, 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 what verses we want West or me or whoever to preach. Not concerned with what we get out of what we're doing here. Paul says, no, our concern should be for others. It should be for building others up. And he says, when you come together for worship, different people are going to bring different things to the table. And then he starts to list off a, a bunch of things. And the idea here is, Paul's saying, do what you do, execute your role, whatever that is. Again, not for yourself, but for other people. And this principle, I think it works on two different levels, okay? The first is this. For those of us, for those of you uh, who have the pleasure, the privilege of getting to serve in any sort of formal capacity on Sundays, okay? Yeah, you're, you're, you're leading in worship, you're playing, you're singing, you're out there greeting, you're in children's ministry, whatever it is. If you're serving in some sort of formal capacity on Sunday, the idea is to serve in such a way to encourage the people around you. In other words, don't, don't come up here and sing or play or, or, or out there greet or speak or, or read or pray for yourself to make yourself look good to sound eloquent or beautiful when you pray, to be seen by all the right people in the right place. Paul says, no, do it to build others up. That should always be at the front of your mind if you're up here. But there's another level. That's the vast majority of us that are not on stage, who will never bring a hymn or a lesson to the service. For you, the question is, how do you worship in a way that is edifying? How do you worship in a way that builds up the people around you? Simple. You do it by participating. By participating. And what I mean by that is, and this is going to seem basic, but first, you have to show up. You have to show up. You have to actually make an effort to be present at church. Participation requires presence. That means that you're not just here when it's convenient or when it fits your schedule, when you can get back in town from the wedding or when you can get back in town from the work thing or, or from the football game that you were at. Now, what that means is you're here no matter what. You actually, groundbreaking, Plan your weekend around being here at church. You're, you're, you're present for church. And, and then, when you're here, and this is just to sort of kind of highlight one aspect of worship in particular, you participate by, by singing, by actually singing. And not by sort of listening or humming or barely mumbling the words on the screen. No, I'm talking about heartfelt participation, 
thinking about the words as you're singing them. Singing out so that the person next to you can hear you. Singing heartily. And you might think, how is that edifying? How does that build the other people around me? I don't have that good of a voice. How, how can that possibly be edifying? The answer is, when we sing, the, the, the hope is, is certainly that there's a general affirmation of the words that are on the screen, that they're, they're, they're good and true. Like, that's what Michael does all week, is he picks songs that are good and true for us to sing. We hope that you can affirm that. But the reality is, depending on where you're coming for, from on any given Sunday, depending on where you're coming from today, each of us believe or experience what we're singing to varying degrees. You know, don't get me wrong. It's not that our circumstances somehow make the words that are on the screen less true. No, it's just that sometimes when you're sitting here, depending on what's going on, they're harder to believe. They're, 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 they're harder to grasp hold of. And it's in those times, times of, of, of insecurity or doubt, when you come to church hurting or anxious, even just sort of apathetic or, or indifferent. It's in those times that hearing the congregation sing, seeing the people next to you sing, looking across the aisle and seeing other people sing, it's then that you can really start to feel, to believe all of the words that we sang earlier. That God is our inheritance. That all of the ground is, is sinking sand. That, that, that God takes and seals us even when we're prone to wander. It's, it's in those times that you're edified. You don't really believe it, but you see someone next to you singing. And on the flip side, it's in those times when you have the opportunity, even if you don't realize it, it's in those times that you have the opportunity to minister to someone around you, even to someone you may not know. So, the first principle of worship that Paul holds up for us here, it's what he's been talking about all along. It's really the primary thing. This is not the last place we're going to see it. It's this. In everything that we do, no matter what role we play here in church, okay, whether you're up here on stage or whether you're sitting out there in the seats, everything we should do, we should do with others in mind. We should do it to build up other people. Now, the second principle is it's going to be a little more drawn out, okay? There's some potential distractions, but it's actually pretty simple. And actually, what I want you to do is I want you to look at verse 40 because it's most easily seen there. Glance at verse 40. Paul says, again, this is referring to worship, but all things should be done decently and in order. All things should be done decently and in order. That's the principle. Now, it's going to come over the course of several verses and in several different examples, but I want that to be in the back of your mind as we read the next set of verses, okay? Decently and in order. Let's read verses 27 through 35. 27 through 35. Paul says, If any speak in a tongue, let there be only two, or at most three, and each in turn. 
and let someone interpret. But if there's no one to interpret, let each of them keep silent in church and speak to himself and to God. Let two or three prophets speak, and let the others weigh what is said. If a revelation is made to another sitting there, let the first be silent. For you can all prophesy one by one, so that all may learn and all be encouraged. And the spirits of prophets are subject to prophets. For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. As in all the churches of the saints, the women should keep silent in the churches. For they are not permitted to speak, but should be in submission, as the law also says. If there's anything they desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home, for it is shameful for a woman to speak in church. Okay, remember the principle. (laughs) Remember the principle, okay? Everything should be done decently and in order. Everything should be done decently and in order, and regardless of the subject matter of these three three examples, tongues, prophecy, or, or women speaking in church, you can see that's what Paul is trying to do here. He's attempting to provide civility and decorum. He's trying to add a little direction. He's trying to clean up the the, the picture that I gave you earlier. Now, I I want to take each one of these examples, and I want to make sure that we all understand what Paul is specifically referring to in each of them. Like I said, the the, the principle here is, is simple enough, but each of these specific examples, they can be a little confusing, and so because of that, unfortunately for you, They're going to require a little extra explanation. And off the top here, what you need to know is that in a a typical worship service in the first century, okay, there were certainly aspects, elements of worships that you would uh, expect to see. Okay, they they sung hymns. They they read from the scriptures. They had somebody would get up and and deliver sort of a, a message. Okay, there were some of these things that you would expect, right? But clearly, at least based on what we read here, there are some other elements, based on what we've been reading the past couple of weeks, there are some other elements of worship that we are a little less familiar with, specifically tongues and prophecy. And just to remind you, I sort of started here today, but really, we've been talking about this last couple of weeks. Okay, what, what seems to be happening is, it seems that these charismatic elements of worship, prophecy, and especially tongues. It seems like they were taking center stage. Okay, they had become sort of the, the focus of worship in Corinth, and as we know, this was creating problems. Okay, people who had these gifts were, were using them to, to, to kind of prop themselves up. Even they were trying to prop themselves up against one another, so they were speaking over each other. They were violating this this first principle that we talked about, that that worship should be done to edify others. They were violating what we talked about with spiritual gifts, that the gifts are actually meant to edify other people. And so what Paul is doing here is to to ensure that the principle from verse 26, what he's been talking about this whole time, that everything be done to build others up, to ensure that that principle is upheld in worship, with prophecy and tongues in particular, he fleshes out this second principle, that everything's done orderly. He does tongues in verses 27 through 28, and then he does prophecy in verses 29 through 33. So first, we're going to start with tongues. Okay, this is sort of a, 
a review from last week. West Brazelton gave the seminal sermon on tongues. You should go listen to it. Uh, but someone speaking in tongues here was using a language that was unknown to them. Okay, they were using a language that was unknown to them, meaning they didn't like go to school, grow up studying it, like Spanish for me or something. Like This is a language they, they didn't know. This is not something that they're familiar with. But at the same time, it was a known language. West made this point pretty forcefully last week, and I think it was convincing. So in other words, this isn't like, incoherent babbling or, or muttering. No, it's, it's a, a real language, meaning it's, it's something that could be used on the, tr- on the street somewhere. And, and we read with tongues, Paul says there's room, at least in the Corinthian church service, for someone to speak in tongues and for someone to interpret them. He said there was space and time given to this, and Paul says if this happens, so It doesn't have to happen, but if it does happen, Paul says there should only be two, and it's kind of funny in Greek, he's like two, but at most, if absolutely necessary, three, only two or three people to speak in tongues in any given service. And then he says that each, the people speaking in tongues and the people interpreting, they should do so in turn, meaning one at a time. He's saying Don't do it randomly. Don't do it over the top of each other. Don't just feel like you got something to say and stand up and say it in Swahili or whatever you're doing. No, take turns. Go one by one. And also, carrying over what he's talked about last week, and I've mentioned this already, but Paul adds, this can only be done in a worship service if there's an interpreter. Only if there's someone who can supernaturally communicate what was said so that the entire congregation could benefit from it, so that everyone could be edified. Paul says if there's not an interpreter, then you got to keep silent. you got to be quiet. you got to keep it to yourself. Now, you might ask, I have, why was this happening in Corinth? Like, it's not like they were unable to communicate with each other. I get that it was a port town and there are people coming from all over the place, but like at this point, most of the people spoke Koine Greek. Like they were able to communicate with each other. It's not even, by the way, that it's sort of evangelistic. Like they're out on the mission field in the bush and there's no way to communicate the gospel. And so God supernaturally gifts tongues so that there's a means of a method of, of communication. Like There seems to be no utility to what's going on here. There seems to be nothing practical behind it. Why why is God using this weird way to speak to the church? Why not just like a message from God in a common tongue, in a normal way? I've been thinking about this all week. Why does it have to be miraculous, supernatural? What's the point? The answer, and... (laughs) This is going to be incredibly unsatisfying. I have no clue. I really don't. I speculated all week. I studied. I read. I talked for hours to basically everybody on our staff. And there seems to be some decent theories. Okay, some decent theories. But really, that's all they are. Just opinions. It's just speculation. People guessing at what the answer is. 
But the one thing I kind of kept coming back to, and this is the thing that I'm certain of, it comes from something we talked about three weeks ago in chapter 12, it's this. God distributes the gifts in the church as he sees fit. God mixes even the gifts in a particular church together as he sees fit. And in Corinth, at least in this time, there were people who could legitimately speak in tongues and interpret tongues and done properly in the midst of worship. We have to accept, because that's what Paul's saying here, done properly in the midst of a worship service, it glorified God and it edified the body. And that's really the goal of any spiritual gift, right? That's the target, to, to glorify God and to edify the body. So, so that's what's going on. Why is God doing it? I, I have no clue, but what I do know is done in this way, the way Paul's describing, it glorifies God and it edifies the body. So that's tongues. That's tongues. Prophecy came in verses 29 through 33, and again, this is review, but but prophecy doesn't necessarily carry with it the idea of like predictive foretelling, at least maybe in the way that we think of it, like, like telling the future, like Professor McGonagall in Harry Potter. Like that's not what we're talking about here with, with a prophecy. Uh, prophecies, you should think of the Old Testament prophets, okay? Uh, Old Testament prophets, a simple way to think about Old Testament prophets are they're covenant litigators, okay? Covenant litigators, meaning they're God's lawyers, and what, what the prophets would do is they would say, they would go to the people, and they'd say, I'm God's lawyer, and they'd say, this is what God's law says. You guys are acting a fool right now. You're breaking his law. If you keep doing that, God's going to do this. Does that make sense? That's what the prophets would do in the Old Testament. They were God's lawyers. And so in some way, even though it's not sort of like foretelling all the time, there is a predictive, there is a future aspect to prophecy, and it always is sort of centered around God's law and repenting of something or some area where the people were falling short. And in Corinth, again, just like with tongues, there was space set aside for this in the worship service. Okay, there were people, and and there's some debate around this, but there were some people, at the very least, who had the gift of prophecy to be able to, to speak God's word to a current situation, to call people to repent. There were people who were gifted in this way, and during the service, they would hear God's word read, and then they would stand up and they'd say, I've got a word from the Lord, and then they'd say, we've fallen into some sort of idolatry. We need to repent. We need to turn our ways. That's what it would look like. And there was time set aside in the service for this. And, and for the record... This would have been limited to people who were recognized by the church. This would have been limited to to, to people who the church had affirmed the gift of prophecy. It's not like anyone, anywhere, at any time could stand up and do this, even though, by the way, that seems to be the way that it was going down at the time. So there's time and space for tongues, equal time and space for prophecy. To regulate this gift, to provide some order, Paul essentially copies and pastes what he had said about tongues. He says, two or three at a time and one by one. Why? Look at the end of verse 31. He says, so that all may learn and be encouraged. In other words, so that all might be edified. That principle from verse 26. And in some ways, by the way, just as the tongue speaker is subject to an interpreter, someone to actually communicate what's being said, prophets had to be careful to subject, or subject to careful evaluation as well. 
Paul says in verse 29, let others weigh what is said. And later in verse 32, the prophets, he says, are subject to each other, meaning they don't speak authoritatively. They don't speak like Paul or the apostles do. He says, you have a right to carefully judge what they're saying, both in light of what God has said in his word and in light of what they're saying about or to each other. And this is another aside, but I think it deserves pointing out here. One of the underlying assumptions that Paul makes here is that the people who would get up and prophesy, they were totally fallible, meaning capable of, of error. They didn't speak with, with God's authority like the prophets in the Old Testament did, like the apostles did, like we see Paul's about to say, he is. Okay, so, so they're subject to scrutiny. And that's, by the way, obviously true today. Okay, anyone who gets up here and preaches, there's, there's some authority that goes with that. But at the same time, it's not authoritative in the way that God speaks or that his word speaks. And so Anyone who gets up here and preaches, anyone who gets up here and talks, by the way, in your small groups, anyone who talks about anything, your leaders or, or people in the group, they're subject to scrutiny. They're fallible. You, you can't take everything that, that me or West or whoever says just at, at, at face value. And that's, that's really, really important to remember. Sometimes we can sort of like find our guys. You know what I mean? And whatever Tim Keller says goes, and now I hate this guy because he hates Tim. And like, y'all, Tim Keller and whoever it is that you like, they're fallible. Wes Brazelton is fallible. I am fallible. So we are subject to scrutiny just like the prophets were. And you should weigh the things that they're saying. You need to be careful about what you listen to. That seems to be a part of y'all's job as the congregation. It's a way that we talked about earlier. It's a way you participate. Okay, so... So tongues and prophecy, they get a similar treatment under the banner of decency and order. We're going to turn to the third group now. This is what you've been waiting for, the women, okay? Paul says plainly in verse 34, women should keep silent. Then he says, they aren't permitted to speak. And then they should be in submission. No one wanted to give an amen. <laughs> I guess the women can't because they can't talk, but I'm kidding, I'm kidding, I'm kidding, okay? Listen, I actually think this is a whole lot less controversial than you think it is. I think it's a whole lot less controversial than you think it is, and maybe not why you think it is, especially when you start looking at this in context. Now, for those of you that have been paying attention, and some of you have a real vested interest in this, uh, You'll likely remember that in chapter 11, Paul recognized that women were praying and prophesying when the church was gathered for worship. And he doesn't say it's wrong. He doesn't call them to task for it. He doesn't tell them to stop doing it. Okay? He's already said that. They're, they're, they're speaking in church in chapter 11. And then in chapter 14, it seems like he's contradicting himself, right? It seems like what he's saying here is, Women are never permitted to speak, ever, never. So, so, so what's going on? What's he saying here? Even though the word speak in verse 34, even though that's like the most general word possible, I don't think Paul is using this as a catch-all for every vocal activity. 
Okay, meaning, what Paul says here in chapter 14, this doesn't undo what has already been said in chapter 11 about prophesying and praying. And, by the way, it doesn't necessarily even support what Paul will later write in 1 Timothy 2 about women teaching. Now, this has its own specific context. Paul is talking about something specifically here. Okay, the other thing is, when Paul talks about both tongues and prophecy in the previous verses, the ones that I kind of belabored the point on, he also doesn't prohibit women from doing either of those things. Did you notice that? And had he intended to, you expect he would have, especially because he went out of his way to line out several other specific directives. You know what, I actually will go a step further and say, in fact, I think he expected women to participate in both of those things, in the tongues and the prophecy. That's why it's sort of gender neutral and he doesn't give any prohibition. So, so again, I don't think these verses can mean that a woman can never speak in a worship service. Instead, and I think this is just sort of like putting it together with the context what seems to be happening here is that there was a group of women, even certain women, who were interrupting the worship service by asking questions of or to the people prophesying. Okay, I, I say that because what Paul says here about them remaining silent, it, it, it happens right after he talks about the guidelines for prophecy. And then right after he tells them to remain silent, he says, if you have a desire to learn... He gives them direction. He says, go and ask your questions somewhere else. To your husband, he says. So, so, so contextually, what it seems like is, is happening here, most likely is there were women who were in the middle of the service, just like everyone else was, kind of lambasting each other by talking and yelling over each other. There were women who were asking questions of the people who were speaking. And they were doing it in the middle of the service, probably while the other person was speaking. And, and regardless of the motivation, it could have been out of a, a genuine desire to learn. It might have been just to kind of like make themselves hurt. But regardless of the motivation, because it was disruptive, because it was disorderly, Paul says they should remain silent. He says it's indecent, it's shameful. So Paul says, these women who are doing this, who are asking these questions in the middle of the service, they should remain silent. And by the way, that's the same command in Greek that Paul gives to the tongue speakers in verse 28. It's the same command that Paul gives to the prophets in verse 30. In other words, the women, just like the other people in this passage, the prophets and the tongue speakers, they were to exercise what Paul's getting at here is, in the worship service, regardless of who you are or what your gift is, you are to exercise self-control. There's a right and a wrong time for everyone to speak. And clearly, whatever's happening here with the women and their questions, this was not the time. Paul says, remain silent. And again, I mentioned this earlier for women, at least with regard to this, Paul says, that time is in private, at home. If you're married, Paul says, ask your husbands. And by the way, real quickly, women, if, if you have husbands, what Paul is doing here is he's providing an avenue, he's encouraging you, bring up spiritual conversations with your husbands. 
Ask your husband's theological questions. Talk to him about the things of the Lord. Talk to him about what the Lord is doing in your life. When you have a question, don't just resort to Google. When you want to share something, don't just talk to the other women in your small group. Dignify, honor your husband by bringing these sorts of things up to him. And husbands, the implication here is that you would be the type of man who would receive questions from your wife and not think that she's bothering you. The the implication here is that you're making time for these sorts of conversations to happen, that you're the type of man that your wife would want to come and ask. You're not making her feel silly or stupid. You're not dismissing her. You're not telling her you've got time for other things, but not that. No, men, the implication here is that you would be the type of man that your wife would feel comfortable, confident in going and talking about spiritual things too. So I want to ask you, Husbands, are you seen as a reliable source of truth to your wife? Are you seen as a reliable source of truth to your wife? Because this should be her posture, but it's never going to be that way if you are not putting out what God is telling you to put down here. You need to be the type of man that can receive questions from your wife, and you need not be passive and let her go everywhere else to get guidance and direction. That's what Paul said. I think that whole deal is a whole lot less controversial than we think it is, y'all. And it cuts both ways. It really does. So big picture. Okay, I've I've zoomed in. I'm going to zoom right back out. Okay, the takeaway from verses 27 through 35, it's this. Paul says that worship should be edifying and it should also be orderly and decent. It should be controlled. It should be structured. What I want want to kind of point out here is that God-glorifying worship, spirit-filled worship. West asked this question like three or four weeks ago. What does spirit-filled worship look like? Okay, the charismatics have one answer. Our answer's here. It's controlled, it's decent, and it's orderly. Is that what you think? Is that what you first think when you think of spirit-filled worship? That's what Paul says here. It's decent and orderly. It's not chaotic or impulsive. So he's laid out some specific guidelines for the hope of mutual edification, and he's going to close out this section by making an appeal to his own authority. And really, I also think what he's going to do is he's going to provide the simplest, shortest answer to what I think is the original question that they asked him. Look at verses 36 through 39. Paul says, Or was it from you that the word of God came? Or are you the only ones that has reached? If anyone thinks that he is a prophet or spiritual, he should acknowledge that the things I am writing to you are a command of the Lord. If anyone does not recognize this, he is not recognized. So, my brothers, earnestly desire to prophesy and do not forbid speaking in tongues. Okay, Paul starts this out sarcastically. He does this throughout 1 Corinthians. It's excellent. What he's basically saying to them is, you guys think you're special? Like, y'all are doing things crazy up there because you think you've found a new way? Are you serious? You're not special. That's what, that's what he says. He accuses them of kind of chronological snobbery, this idea that the, the, the new is, is, is better. We, we think this way all of the time, right? Like, well, uh, they used to do it that way, and it was good for them, but now that we know this is much better over here. Like, that's, that's what the Corinthians have done. That's what Paul 
is railing against here and he corrects them. He's saying, no, no, no. The really spiritual people among you, the ones that would be prophets, the ones that would speak for God. He's saying, they recognize that what I'm saying are commands from God. They're not looking for the latest, coolest trajectory, the new thing. No, the truly spiritual among them would recognize the command of God, Paul says, is the things I'm saying. He's saying, so remember how I told you to weigh what the prophet said? I already weighed this for you. It's good. Take it. This is the command of God. You don't have to weigh this. And he said, if people reject these principles for worship, people reject these guidelines, Paul says, that's your telltale sign. That person's not a prophet. You shouldn't listen to them anymore. They shouldn't talk anymore. They're not to be recognized, is what he says. And then, like I said, I assume verse 39 is his most plain answer to the original question when the Corinthians wrote Paul to begin with. I think the question was something like, what do we do about tongues and prophecy, or which is better, tongues and prophecy, or what's going on with the tongues and prophecy, whatever it is, Paul gives the most simple answer in verse 39, and he says, hey, prophecy is so much better. Prophecy is so much better because it has the most impact with the most people. It has the best ability to impact the greatest number of people. And he says, by the way, don't prohibit tongues. I know it's weird, but it's there, and you can't prohibit it. That's Paul's simplest answer. So I want to conclude here because I'll be honest. This is history. I think this is the longest sermon I've ever given in 11 years here. We've waded through the details, okay? And Paul tells the Corinthians that edification, that order is the key to worship. And no matter how spiritual, no matter how spontaneous, no matter how mature the Corinthians thought that their way was, Paul says, individually and collectively, there's a better way for you. And the warning for us is that we shouldn't just be flippant or cavalier with our participation in worship. Not just in in the spirit, our attitude as we come to worship, but actually in the things that we do, the way that we do them, we should not be flippant about them. This whole section proves to us that God cares about what we do and how we do it. At the same time, the great hope of this section and really the broader section here is that as we remember these two principles, as we gather as a church, as we recognize each other's spiritual gifts, as we get together We apply these two principles, edification, order. The hope is that the church comes together in a marvelous way. It can be a a place where we're strengthened and encouraged, edified. It can be a place, what what Paul says here sort of in closing is, it can be a place of, of, of peace, not chaos. Paul says chaos is out there in the world. The church done right. This is a place where we are guaranteed to find peace, not just peace with God, but peace from God. Let me pray. Father, I'm thankful that you are a God that's worthy of our worship, Lord. I'm thankful and, Lord, even in awe of the fact that you've chosen to allow us to worship you. Uh, Lord, we are uh, broken and sinful. Lord, we are nothing without you. And, uh, Lord, we're, we're just thankful that you have lowered yourself for our sakes, Lord, that you sent your son Jesus, uh, Lord, that we might have relationship with you, and, and not even relationship, Lord, but, but also we could have participation in your kingdom. Lord, I pray for each one of my friends here as we consider what participation looks like, Lord, as we consider what our participation on Sundays even looks like, I pray that we would do all of that to your glory, Lord, I pray that we would do so in a way that is pleasing to you. 
Uh, Lord, and I, I pray that we do so in a way that would be edifying and building up to the people around us. We love you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.